your regularly scheduled program for a special announcement. The United States is headed for an entitlement crisis. Social Security and Medicare are going broke. You are going to have to pay the bill. You are going to have to pay the bill. Welcome to the Debt Dialogues, where you'll learn about the coming entitlement crisis, how it affects you, and what you can do about it. Debt Dialogues. Here's your host, Ayn Rand Institute Fellow, Don Watkins. In this episode of the Debt Dialogues, We're going to do something a little different. About a month ago, I debated the morality of the welfare state at Butler University against philosophy professor Harry Vanderlinden. I think there's a lot of good content here, not only in terms of the right way to think about the welfare state, but I think you can learn a lot about how its supporters think of it. So with that, let's dive right in. All right, so I'm going to start this off the way I start off every conversation it seems nowadays, which is talking about my daughter who's uh, just about to turn one. And, you know, having her has really caused me to kind of reflect on life and what I want out of my life and what I want out of her life. And if I was going to boil it down, I would say to her, I want her to be free to choose the kind of life that she wants to live, to find a career that she's really passionate about, to form deep and meaningful relationships, and to use the money from her career in order to make her hopes and dreams a reality. And what this debate is really about is about a huge barrier to Livy Bell's pursuit of happiness, to my pursuit of happiness, and to your pursuit of happiness. So what's the welfare state? Well, the welfare state, broadly put, is one in which the government's role is seen as taking care of the welfare of its citizens, of uh, healing us, educating us, providing for us in retirement. So instead of you going out and earning money and then using it to support your needs, the government is going to play a major role of taking a bunch of money from you and then providing you with benefits. And that's everything from Medicare to Social Security to government schooling to food stamps, a plethora of programs. But what I'm going to focus on is um, welfare state programs directed to the elderly, Social Security and Medicare mainly, because those are both by far the largest programs and the most damaging to us now and in the years ahead. Um, America is headed for a welfare state crisis. And you may have heard that we're $12 trillion in debt, or sometimes people will say $17 trillion in debt. And that's, those are big numbers, but they're totally phony numbers. That is, if the government had to keep its books the way that a private business does and put all of its commitments on its books, we're not talking about $12 trillion. We're talking about $205 trillion, give or take a few. And that really amounts to $700,000 for every person in this room and every man, child, and woman in the United States. <clears throat> now, what does that actually mean for your life, though? Because there's nobody's going to be knocking on your door saying, fork over $700,000. But let me just take one set of programs that are the easiest to talk about. Social Security and Medicare Part A, which we fund primarily through the payroll tax. And that right now is 15.3% of our income, basically. Now, for the average millennial worker straight out of college, that's already more than a new car payment a month that he has to make to the elderly. To fully fund those programs over the decades ahead, that's going to have to basically double. I mean, we're getting into territory here for just these programs where we're not talking about a car payment, but a car a year that you are going to be forced to to pay for before you get to worry about your own life. That's going to come first in terms of you have to pay these benefits to support the elderly before you can start worrying about things like moving into your own place, buying your own car, starting a savings, 
uh, paying off your college loans sometime this century. Now, I call this the debt draft because just like the military draft says, hey, you were planning on doing something with your life, too bad society has big, different plans for you, the debt draft is really going to take control of your life and force you to put a lot of your hopes and dreams in the back burner. Now, you might think, well, what about all the benefits, right? You know, sure, I'm going to be paying this bunch of money now, but someday I'm going to get a lot of stuff too, right? Well, the fact is that today's baby boomers are going to receive on average $327,000 more than they ever paid in taxes and benefits. Uh, our generation, I just found out I'm technically part of your generation. I'm a millennial. Who knew that? Um, the, the, we're going to be ten dollars to $20,000 less than we ever receive in benefits. But Livy's generation, your future children's generation, they're going to be paying $420,000 more than they ever receive in benefits. There's another word for that. It's bankrupt. <clears throat> now, don't misunderstand me. This is not a young versus old issue. Pardon me. I'm getting over a cold right now. This is not a young versus old issue. Part of the tragedy here is that our parents' generation was exploited in the same manner. Not, not as bad as us, but they paid the same taxes. And one of the great tragedies right now is that there's people who, in order to pay their bills, have no choice but to exploit the next generation. But the fact is, we would have been way better off if these programs had never been created. We've been way better off. Because the fact is, most Americans are responsible, financially successful, and able to provide for themselves throughout their life, including in retirement. <clears throat> Um, now, it's true that some people can't support themselves for a whole bunch of reasons. Sometimes it's bad luck, sometimes it's bad choices, and a lot of stuff in between. Now, in a free society, the key is that they're not entitled to anybody else's support. In a free society, you're responsible for your own life. You go out there, you earn money, and you use it to support your hopes and dreams, make them a reality. And part of that is supporting the people and causes you care about. So this debate is not about are, do you want to help people? That is part of a person pursuing his happiness. He figures out, I, I mean, I work for a nonprofit, and so a lot of our donors, these are people motivated by self-interest who say, yeah, I want to see my ideas spread in the, wor in the world, so I'm going to give money to it. This is not about helping others. The essence of this debate is are people entitled to support by others? Are you entitled to turn others into servants? Are other people entitled to time and money from your life or not? A free society says no. The welfare state says yes. Now, I think you should be able to see why this kind of setup had to lead to a debt draft. I mean, think of it this way. If you think that you could like guarantee people benefits that they don't have to pay for and keep them affordable, then you have never put out a bucket of Halloween candy with a sign that says, please just take one. <laughs> so the... Well, you might be thinking, though, look, Don, you're talking a lot about pursuit of happiness, but we live in society and we have obligations to other people, right? True enough. But what kind of obligation do we have? Because if you say that somebody has an obligation, you, are, you have to say exactly what it is, because otherwise an undefined obligation is an obligation that can never be fulfilled. And the obligations we have to others are basically three. One, gratitude to anybody who benefits us and helps us or we learn from. Two, we have to abide by any agreements we voluntarily enter into. So when I had Livy, I was agreeing to educate her, clothe her, take care of her, and so on. 
And three, we have an obligation to respect other people's uh, freedom and property and to remember that their lives are not ours to dispose of. So <clears throat> we face a basic choice about whether we're going to continue on this path of welfare state exploitation that's really selling you guys down the river, your children down the river, my child down the river. Or we can move to a free society, a society where everybody's able to get better off at the same time because everybody's responsible for their own lives. Where we, it's a win-win society where we don't go around picking each other's pockets and voting for benefits that we don't have to pay for, but where we're free to make the most of our own lives. And then if we want support the causes and people we care about. And just to give you one big picture fact I want you to keep in mind throughout this debate. When America came the closest to this ideal that I'm talking about, which was really post-Civil War to 1935 when the welfare states created by the New Deal, this was an era when people were just scrambling out of the country, right, because it was so bad. No, this is when millions were flocking here from all across the world, including places like Germany that had welfare states, because they knew that free, a free society and not a free lunch was the key to a happy, flourishing life. And indeed, it took progressive intellectuals 50 years from the 1880s until 1935 to impose a welfare state on people because they had one simple principle that they uh, lived by, which was the world doesn't owe me a living and the world doesn't owe you a living. And I think that's an attitude we should aspire to again today. Thank you, John. Now Dr. Basically, the state 
has supported her in various ways so that she still can live on her own. For one thing, over the last 13 years, the state has paid for a cleaning person to come into her home a couple of hours a week. It's been the same person, they have become friends of some sort, uh, and that helps obviously her mother right, to be able to live in her own home because she is no longer of an age that she could clean the home by herself. <coughs> Occasionally, maybe this sounds a little bit far-fetched for Americans, occasionally she is allowed to basically use a taxi service a few times a month, paid for by the government, so that she can go, for example, to a specialist, to an event, and so on. My mother lives in a kind of like a small town, you know, 10 miles away or so from a larger town, and so there was limited bus service, and this is one way, and again, in which the state helps her to live her own life. One final example, regrettably, a year ago, she broke her arm, and again, there basically what happened is that for several months, the Dutch state paid for a therapist to come to her home every day to do exercises with her arm, and on top of it, every morning somebody came in to help her to get dressed and bathed. She could not do that by herself. Now, in my eyes, those kind of problems programs I would call like life-affirming welfare programs because they basically help people to live a good life. So let me now give some examples of welfare programs that I think are basically not life-affirming because they result from economic failure. They result from failure of capitalist society. They result from the fact that people are, in my account, exploited. Consider Walmart. Okay. Walmart has a revenue of around $450 billion per year, $15 billion per year in profit. Its workers, most of its workers, are not paid a living wage. As a result, 80%, up to 80% of Walmart employees receive food stamps. There is also a significant number of Walmart employees that receive Medicaid. The public, okay, paid in 2013, this is an estimate, $2.7 billion in subsidies, right, in welfare <coughs> subsidies to the workers of Walmart. Now this, I think, is a bad welfare. Program. It is indirect a welfare program, right, for Walmart because Walmart doesn't pay a living wage. And in my eyes, it's not a life affirming welfare program because workers would be way better off if we would have at least a minimum wage, right, that enabled workers actually to live from a living wage and so that they could get housing. Now, there are a wide variety of other corporate welfare programs that we have in our society and that I basically think are bad programs. I mean, farm subsidies, right, in the billions to very rich <coughs> farm corporations, 
we have, of course, that the government basically subsidized companies by, you know, giving them non-competitive contracts. Think about the Defense Department with huge cost overruns. It is the case that communities often end up subsidizing corporations by giving them tax breaks, free land, and so on. So those are the kind of welfare programs that I'm against. Let me uh, briefly turn to Social Security. Um, I think, roughly speaking, and Donna is correct, right? That Social Security works in such a way that basically the present generation, right, more or less, it pays for future <coughs> generations. I think, however, that uh, as far as I know, Don's figures are kind of off. And I'm not sure where he got his figures from, but let me just here uh, quote you briefly from a news release. Uh, you know, this is a news release of the Social Security Board of Trustees, uh, dated May 34, 2013, and they basically say, okay, that the projected actuarial deficit over the next 75 years, and I think that pretty much includes everybody here in this room, unless, you know, surprisingly you guys did way older than we ever did, so you're covered. Okay, so the projected deficit over the next 75 years is 2.72% of the taxable payroll. So what we are talking about right here is that basically the deficit would be solved, right? And basically the employer, right, roughly would raise uh, the payroll tax by 0.1%, 5%, and similarly for the employee. Now, of course, there are many other ways of making, you know, Social Security solvent in the long run, ways that do not involve that we have to raise payroll tax. For example, we could raise the limit, right, over which payroll taxes are paid. Right now, there is a limit, I don't know what it exactly is, like 105 or so. 135, I believe. Huh? 135,000. 135. So, you know, we can raise that, right? That is one way of dealing with the issue. The other issue is, of course, to basically make Social Security, to some extent, means-tested. Right now, of course, you will get your Social Security, right? But if your income is a million or two million, it doesn't matter how much private investment stock you have as a retiree, you get your Social Security. And we could, of course, change that and indeed say, like, oh, Social Security is going to be a problem, right? That is supposed to basically cover the basic needs of those who have no other assets. Now, let me end with a general comment about responsibility between generations. I have left out a fourth vulnerability, and that is the vulnerability of basically being born. Right? Everybody needs care and resources when they are born, and they need that you know, anywhere from 15 to 25 years. Now, in my eyes, basically, to deal with the vulnerability of childhood, the dependency of childhood, is obviously partly 
an individual responsibility. But I also believe it's partly a collective responsibility. Should we? There's the 10 minutes. Okay, I'll, yep. I'll take one or two more minutes. Can I finish my sentence? Um, is that all right with you, Don? He, he can finish the sentence. Yeah, yeah, if you can finish the start, finish the start. Oh, I, you know, you should have said, like, oh, this is an absolute, you know, <laughs> I didn't realize that libertarians were so, whoa, <laughs> well, you know, freedom, freedom. Freedom. <laughs> you know, that is fun. <laughs> uh, okay, I'm sorry. So, let me finish that my sentence, that basically, okay, I believe that it is the case that the present generation has some obligation collectively to raise their children. That invests a, requires a lot of resources, and I don't think there is anything in principle wrong with the fact, okay, that when the generation that is raised right now in turn becomes a working generation that they would feel some obligation towards those that they have been raised by, the elderly, and that they feel also some kind of obligation to those that they are supposed to raise in turn their children. And that is a long sentence. I would call justice between generations. Thank you. So now we're going to go to a three-minute rebuttal by Don, and then a three-minute rebuttal again by Dr. Ben. Ready? <clears throat> yeah. So I think it's important whenever we're talking about the welfare state and the alleged benefits that it provides to remember the hidden victims. So the fact is the government doesn't have any benefits to bestow. It all comes from somebody. It all comes at the expense of somebody who earned it. And it goes then to those who some people regard as needing it. So the question is, what justifies that? We heard just this assertion that you have obligations to other people, but why? Why does their need entitle them to your service? Because if we take that seriously, and I would like to hear exactly how much does it obligate you? 25% of your income? 50% of your income? 75%? As I said, an undefined obligation is an obligation that you can never fulfill. And does it apply to just your neighbors, to all of America, to all of the world? Well, if it applies to all of the world, then that means the evisceration of your standard of living. Well, that's too late anyway, though, because guess what? Your standard of living is all already going to be eviscerated by the welfare state. Now, he asked for my numbers. My numbers are, come primarily from uh, Lawrence Kotlikoff, who's a supporter of the welfare state, by the way, but he's a Boston University economist using CBO numbers. And we can debate exactly how you calculate it, but uh, if you listen to my um, podcast, The Debt Dialogues, for instance, I interview one of the trustees of Social Security, and the numbers are much worse than he says. And if you want to talk about what the solutions are, all the solutions that everybody has proposed really amount to two things. Raise your taxes, decrease your benefits. That's their big solution. Make life worse for this generation, for future generations. Whoop-de-doo. That's not very impressive to me. I don't think that you should be treated as servants for other people. And when we talk about future generations having these obligations, I don't believe that when I had Livy Bell, I was breeding a slave. She is a sovereign individual, has a right to pursue happiness. It's my obligation to take care of her. It's not his. Why can I impose obligations on him? I don't believe that the choices of another person can bind somebody else without his consent. That is the very meaning of slavery. It's the idea that somebody else can obligate you without your consent. 
I mean, take, I, I, I mean, just take a common sense example. If you have a boss who comes in and said, hey, I'm going to give you a company car. Yeah, it's a 1984 Toyota, but it's going to benefit you. And uh, now I've decided that you owe us back, right? And so what, what do you owe? Well, why don't you work overtime without pay for six months? Now, the whole, the, the, my view is that you should have the freedom if somebody offers you a deal to say, that sounds like a crappy deal. But the whole idea behind the welfare state is saying that because he thinks you have obligations, he gets to force those obligations on you. If he thinks that Social Security is a great deal, that we're going to take 12.4% or 15% or 30% and then give you something back at the end of your life, maybe. In my view, you can do that privately and voluntarily. You can create a program where you say, hey, guys, you, uh, why don't you give me a bunch of money now? And someday, maybe you'll be able to convince a bunch of Americans to give you money. But what I don't believe is that you should be able to impose that system on somebody and they are forced to abide by it without their consent. Done. Uh, three minutes again, Dr. Yeah, I think part of the difference that we have is how we look at at human beings, and basically, in my eyes, uh, you know, human beings are social beings. They are, you know, collective beings. It is the case that the raising of children is not simply an undertaking of a, of a parent. I mean, it asks the assistance of schools, it asks the assistance of police agents, you name it. In short, right, basically most of the things we do ask for you know, social cooperation. People have to work together somehow to make this all possible. And so the real question is, you know, what are reasonable terms of cooperation? And so if I kind of follow the philosophy that Don gives me, I mean, I might say, listen, you know, whatever, little Trudy, my child, you know, I got to save for my whatever, retirement, you know. Why should I, right, have a duty? I mean, it's charity to basically give you say, whatever, a bottle of education and knock out $100,000 <coughs> so that you can go to Butler. I mean, why should I not look on basis of his kind of philosophy, right, to children as basically sources of income, right? Why would I then not say, like, oh, let me just, you know, use my children, right, to clean my home and to help in my business so that I basically can enrich myself and put money away for the future. Why not? What is this mysterious obligation that Don suddenly talks about that he feels towards his own children? There is certainly no contract there, right? Uh, so my answer, of course, is to that is basically, yes, I do believe that we have some kind of collective responsibility for one another, right, to basically create for one another a decent life. That's what it means to live in a society. His child is part of that. There are some children who are born in very unfortunate conditions. I think we have an obligation to them. There are some children who are born in a situation that they have such serious handicaps that basically their parents cannot take care of them on any kind of reasonable account. And again, I feel we live in a society 
collectively to deal with an issue like that. And, you know, I can see different ways of exactly doing these things. I mean, I can in some ways be sympathetic to say, well, maybe we should place more emphasis on the community rather than on the state, the exact mechanisms in which we, you know, express the preparedness to help one another, you know, I think have to be institutional. But I can see, you know, many different kind of institutions uh, in the service of that goal. All right, and then we have one question each for Don and Dr. Vanderlinden. Um, these will be five minutes each. Uh, first, we go into Don. Uh, the question we had was, in this world that we, uh, in the welfare state that we discuss, um, there are certain people that are left behind, such as you know the example of people who work at Walmart and work 40 hours a week but can't make ends meet. What can or should we as society or the state be doing to help them? Well, I think <clears throat> this question, I want to challenge the premise. See, the whole premise is if you want to really divide up our different approaches, mine is an individualist approach that says each individual is an end in himself or herself. You have a right to exist for your own sake, and you can live your life without sacrificing for others or demanding sacrifices from them. The collectivist view is that, no, you basically society owns you. It has a trump card that says whenever it needs your sacrifices, it gets to call them in. So for instance, let's take this idea of children as sources of income. Now that is really rich. His whole view of what people are is their burdens and resources. Their burdens when society has to dole out resources to them and their resources when we can pay into the system. My whole view is precisely that individuals have a right to pursue happiness and we need a society where you're free to pursue happiness and free from what? From the right from other people forcing and imposing their views of what the good society consists on you. Now, the idea that that's anti-cooperation is just simply flat out wrong and misleading. I am for cooperation of any kind as long as it's voluntary. That is, it's cooperation if you and I get together and say, hey, let's run a business together, and you say, yeah, you have a great idea, I'll invest my money, da, da. It's not cooperation if I come and say, hey, I just took your money because I have really good uses for it that are better than yours. That's collectivism. That is not cooperation. Cooperation is what we do independently pursuing our interests when the interests align. But in a free society where you say, you know what, our interests don't align, you're free to go your own way. Other people, again, they can't bind you. They can't pull out a trump card that says, no, today you're our servant. Why? And I haven't heard a why yet. I haven't heard an answer to why. It's certainly not because life without a welfare state would be horrific. The fact is, all of the things that we genuinely want a safety net for, right? These were provided for privately and voluntarily before America had a welfare state, which is why it took the leftist intellectuals 50 years to create one. And I don't just mean private charity, although that was indeed abundant. I mean things like insurance that people bought, mutual aid societies. You know, you could pay voluntarily to join groups where if you lost a job or you got sick or you, could, or you needed to move into a retirement home, you could pay a small monthly fee. And these were so widespread that they were second only to religious institutions in their popularity. For more, see my forthcoming book, Roosevelt Care, uh, which I'll be making available for free online. But the, 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 the basic division that you always need to keep in mind is individualism versus collectivism. Does the individual have a right to exist for his own sake, or are you a servant? And if you're a servant, what's the justification for that? And I, again, I didn't hear any uh, number. How much is society allowed to use you as a resource? 
How much society is allowed to use you as a resource? 25%, 50%. It's undefined. Again and again, they leave it undefined. Why? Because they want to be able to call on your sacrifice whenever they want. And I believe that is immoral and wrong. Thank you, Don. Now, the question we had for Dr. Vanderlinden is about the compassion of the welfare state. Now, we see a lot of arguments about it being compassionate or benevolent to help people um, through the welfare state. And so the question is, how do you reconcile compassion and benevolence with the use of force by the state itself? Well, I, I first of all want to start to say that I think Dog, you know, partly simply misinterpreted me. I, of course, am not saying somehow that parents should expel children. I'm only saying that within his philosophy, right, it doesn't seem to be the case that there is some kind of normative framework that prohibits that. Dog is a nice guy. No doubt, he's a lovely father. But the point is, not all parents are lovely parents. And so the question is, in his system, if it is not seen as a social responsibility, right, partly a collective responsibility to raise children, right, what will happen indeed to children who do not have such a nice parents and who do say, like, oh my gosh, I'm not going to get Social Security, so I better just let my kids work now and help them to make money for my <coughs> about uh, you know this notion somehow that the welfare state right is you know something that was cooked up by progressive intellectuals and that somehow you know this was in response to a situation that was economically better, uh, you know, than what came afterwards, after the introduction of the wealth state of the Sorry, that's complete nonsense. Complete nonsense. I cannot say that more clearly. I mean, it is like, okay, we had never a market collapse. It is like in the 1930s. It is like if we never had a situation in which 10 millions of Americans were without work, Right? I mean, all these 10 millions, they were all, whatever, yeah, freely given charity. I mean, that is a nonsensical picture. And what happened in the United States, right, is basically that the United States, right, became a major economic power, for better or for worse, for one important reason, right? And that is because of massive government investment in our industry during the Second World War, right? And that is basically, you know, state control of the economy. And I have certainly certain kind of reservations about that. But I do not want to hold up the other picture that somehow that if you leave, you know, capitalism undisturbed, right, if you do not regulate the market, that somehow we end up you know, with cooperation, with human beings flourishing, and so on, right? In the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century, right, we have seen one economic crisis after another. Why is that, right? 
basically, we got the welfare state right, as a way of dealing with the failures of capitalism. That's why we have it here in the United States. That's why we got the welfare state in Europe. There is one difference between Europe and here. In Europe, basically, those who favored capitalism were much more worried about the communist alternative than they were here in the US. And as a result, therefore, in Europe, we have a way stronger welfare state, basically as a way of accommodating the calls and the whatever you want to call them, the, the struggles of the middle class and the working class in Europe. And of course, what we see right now, right everywhere across the world, is basically that you know we see a pushback of welfare programs because basically there has been a shift in power between, say, the working class, the middle class, and those who own the means of production. And, you know, thanks to that shift in power, we will see a pushback of welfare programs. How long this will go on, I have no idea, because the economic inequality in this country is getting so steep that sooner or later this is going to lead to serious unrest. And that brings me back to, again, the issue that I was trying to indicate to him, right? And he thinks that I don't offer arguments, but I am basically saying that a society is a cooperative enterprise, and basically you have to somehow find terms of reasonable cooperation. And basically in a society in which many have no means of survival, you don't have reasonable terms of cooperation. And one way that people try to get cooperation is indeed by creating welfare programs so that every member of society at least feels that they have a stake in society. The problem is his vision of society is that there will be many people who will not feel that they have stake in a society like that. All right, now we open up the floor to questions for both uh, Dr. Randall Linden and Don. Um, if you'd like to ask one or the other, let me know, or if you want to ask both of them, that'd be great too. Um, it's going to be five minute answers again. So, is there any questions for Don or Dr. Randall Linden? Sorry. I'd like to follow up with the question Don asked. So, the name of society and how, how is that calculated? Well, for, for me, uh, that basically formulates the question wrongly. And that is because I believe, right, that if we would have a good society, that basically we have economic empowerment from below, right? And so, Again, I want to stress that I do believe that many of our welfare programs are basically the result because of the failure of unregulated capitalism. So I myself favor, for example, a situation in which workers would collectively own their companies, in which there would be democracy in the workplace. And so basically I envision the good society to be one in which members of economic and for that matter educational and political institutions have a real voice in the institutions of which they are part. So obviously, 
right? If we would have a society in which there would be a more just distribution of profits, in which, for example, the employees, right, of uh, Walmart would share, right, in the $15 billion profits, right, then these employees would not need, you know, welfare payments. They would not need food stamps. And so I think part of the problem with your question is that I, I don't think it is an ideal situation in which somehow, you know, the government has to tax a bunch of people and then shift the money to a bunch of other people, right? For me, the good society is one in which basically this distributive function, right, of society is of the government is not taking place in the first place because the rules of the game are more fair and are more, you know, in favor of those who we want to call working people rather than, let's say, uh, capital assets owners. So my answer to you is that, you know, in my vision of the good society, there would be way, way, way fewer welfare programs than we have right now. So. <clears throat> I don't have too much to say to that, because I don't think it's a particularly illuminating answer to say, well, basically, we'll just strip people of their property rights, and that's our big solution. I want to comment briefly, though, on the, the idea of the history. The, the, if America before the welfare state was so awful, then why were people flocking here? Why was it seen as the land of opportunity? Why, if you read what people were saying from that era, they were speaking of America as the great emancipator and liberator of the individual. Why were they saying no to the welfare state for 50 years? Yes, there was a Great Depression, which was the result of government intervention into the economy. The fact is that we didn't have laissez-faire during that period, and, uh, and that was the great tragedy. The great tragedy is that when government intervenes, only it can create the kind of mass unemployment and disturbances that necessitate or that uh, wipe out the ability of private charity and private enterprise to provide for people's living. But that, I, I still haven't heard an answer. Why were people flocking here if it was such a nightmare? Uh, but the, ex, pardon me. Um, now, the, the whole idea of employees taking a share in their profits, I just want to, let's be concrete about what exactly happens in a business. So you're an owner of a business, let's say, right? And, and, you, have, and you have property. Maybe you have, you have capital assets, you have a, a place to work, you have a business plan. You go out there and you, set, you offer people, say, hey, if you want to help me out with this, I'm going to give you X amount of money. So they agree. They do that. They perform their role. You sell your products. You get a return. They got paid already. The idea that they're entitled to the profits that come from what your property uh, created above and beyond the terms that they voluntarily agree to is simply wrong. And when anybody has attempted to loot uh, people of their property. I mean, look, if you plot out on a, on a grid the extent of economic freedom and capitalism that a country has with its prosperity, it's almost a one-to-one -one relationship because the keys to prosperity are capital accumulation, innovation, and the profit motive because it's only when people are motivated to create values for other people that you get prosperity. How did I get here to this debate? I took an airplane by people driven by the profit motive. I stayed in a hotel because of the profit motive. I was able to communicate with my wife and child because people motivated by the profit motive created iPhones and all of these wonderful tools. That's how you get rich in a situation where all relationships are voluntary. 
Whenever, when rights are protected and relationships are voluntary, the only way for you to get money from me is to offer me something really, really good in return, right? But when you have a situation like socialism or like the welfare state, you can get rich not by creating value for other people, but by picking their pocket. That is a system that I think is corrupt from the root. And we should look forward to a society of win-win where we can all prosper together. And then those few who can't support themselves, and it's very few. I mean, we can talk about people who are paralyzed, have no arms, have no legs, and yet are still able to prosper in a free society. You can help out all the people and causes you care about. Nobody will stop you. But what you can't do is say, I'm going to reach into somebody else's pocket because I say that their need is a claim on my life. <clears throat> if uh, the welfare state is going to provide me with all the supposed needs that I might have, whether it be retirement, medical, uh, let's say education, and so on like that, and what I really want to know is why on earth would I even want to work and make money if you're going to take it all from me? Why don't I just sit back and enjoy the benefits? Is that a question to me? Uh-huh. Well, I have no idea why you make these claims. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, if I accept the claims that you make and you suggest somehow that that the welfare state involves that you take everything away, then obviously you are <coughs> right. On the other hand, eh, you know, we can, we can start out Right, with recognizing that there are all kind of social structures right, that we need in order to function as human beings, right? And so we need an infrastructure. I mean, he talks about the plane, right? But we have airports, right? And somebody got to build the airports, right? And somebody got to train the pilots, right? And you can go on. Somebody got to build the plane, right? And so basically all I am saying, right, is that all those who seem to be engaged in labor, right, and basically make society possible through their labor, right, deserve basically to share the fruits of labor. And it is the case that I indeed do believe that the mere, right, uh, provision of capital does indeed not automatically give people some kind of claim on huge shares of income. I mean, it is nice maybe for whatever, say Paris Hilton to be fabulously wealthy. Uh, and she basically doesn't have to do anything ever in her life to become more and more wealthy, right? So basically we have a system, right, in which people who do not do any kind of labor, right? And basically, because they were lucky, for example, to inherit money, they can become fabulously wealthy. You don't have to do anything. So I question the justice of that. And so my answer is basically, again, look at the terms of social cooperation. I do believe that those who basically, you know, are engaged in a cooperative enterprise to make our society possible, right, should basically share in the fruits of their labor. Right now, we live in a society, right, in which it is actually the case that 
a fairly small number of people, right, become fabulously wealthy, often by performing anything but productive labor, right? So look at the, you know, some of the very great minds, right, that come out of our top schools, right? Where do they go nowadays? Wall Street, right? So that they can acquire a few million dollars by the time they are 30 years old, right? It is no longer for many people attractive, right, to go into science, right, or to even indeed create their own business, right? Because basically, if you go to Wall Street and you speculate, you can become fabulously wealthy. And so my question then is to you, right? What is it that these people do that they should deserve or have a right, a property right, whatever that might mean, to that kind of income? So it's important to realize that wealth is created, that what wealth is is not a zero-sum game. It's taking the resources around us and making them more valuable. And in capitalism, the only way for you to get wealth, wealth from other people is through voluntary trade, where they judge that what you've created is more valuable than what they're giving you in return. And the fact is that uh, even today, as much government regulation, as much welfare state stuff as we have, predominantly the way people have gotten wealthy is not by picking other people's pockets or by even using the power of government, although that definitely happens. And we both agree corporate welfare should be gotten rid of uh, as soon as possible, but it's by creating great values. And so the only sense in which they have, the, the wealthy have a larger distribution of the wealth is the same way in which Mormons have a larger distribution of children. They created more of them. They created more wealth. Steve Jobs, if you go down the Forbes list, the, the, the Forbes 400, first of all, fewer than 20% of them are heirs. And most of those heirs are still acting productively. They aren't Paris Hilton's. They're people who've created stuff. Now, he mentioned that people aren't going into business and they're not creating things. And his big contribution is to say, well, let's loot the businesses and, quote, give it to the workers. Workers can, have, can be owners in any business. And indeed, a lot of the workers at Walmart are part owners of Walmart by voluntarily buying the stock. But you, what you can't do is grab somebody else's property, something that you didn't create, that Sam Walton indeed created through his hard work and hard labor. The key thing you have to remember is in an individualist society, all relationships are voluntary. And in a collectivist society, no, it's seizing, force, looting, sacrificing others, getting rid of win-win and instead having this dog-eat-dog -dog exploitation. And let's not forget who's being exploited more than anybody today. It ain't the poor, it's you guys. It's our generation and my daughter's generation. It's programs like Social Security and Medicare that are really going to sell our future down the river. And the so-called justification that's offered for them that, ah, I say people have obligations. We do have obligations to respect other people's freedom and property, not to violate it. Do right, we have any other questions for Don or Dr. Vanderlinden? Yes. Uh, I have a question for Don, and it's kind of two parts. Um, provided that uh, some of these social, or some of the welfare system, and what would happen to the people? In and as a follow-up, in a society <coughs> that you envision primarily motivated by the accumulation of wealth and ethical egoism, 
do you really think that there's going to be a bit of all this money that is for them? I mean, <clears throat> um, yeah, I'll try to answer each briefly. So in terms of transitioning, there, there's a debate about how you transition out, but it can never be the situation that, well, we can't go through the transition or that the transition trumps the moral alternative. So for instance, in the debates over slavery, a lot of the response to the abolitionists was, well, all these people are already dependent on their masters. You're just going to free them. They're not going to be able to survive. But the abolitionists said, no, this is a moral travesty. And however difficult it is to unwind, we have to unwind it. And so my view is the, 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 the basic issue is, is this system moral or not? And it's definitely not moral. It's not moral to treat people as slaves or servants. And, there, and then we can debate what's the best way out of it. I don't believe you just pull the rug out from people tomorrow. I think people plan their life around this. I think you have to have a process of doing it, and we can debate the best way to do it. Um, uh, if you want to ask in a follow-up, I mean, I can, I can tell you uh, some of the ideas that I have, but I think it's very debatable. I don't, I'm not married to any. In the society that I advocate, first of all, again, charity is a very, very small part. In uh, America before the welfare state. Now, this is capitalism. It only started to enrich us from eons of poverty. So people were only starting to get better off. And yet, how many uh, of the elderly who are often unable to support themselves, how many of them had to were dependent on uh, private charity? You're talking about roughly 1% of the, pop the elderly population. That, uh, today, when, the el when people reach uh, old age with vast more amounts of wealth, I think the idea that charity is some huge requirement is not true. Um, but what motivates people to take care of it? Self-interest is not, uh, it has to be understood in a very broad sense of the kind of life that's going to make me most fulfilled, successful, and happy. And this is something that I develop at length in my book, Free Market Revolution, and that Ayn Rand talks about expansively. And so the welfare of the people and causes I care about are a huge selfish value to me. And that's why, for instance, if I was enormously financially successful, one of my passions in life is education. And I would love to help the next Steve Jobs, who's struggling to make something of his life, to be able to help him get an education. And many wealthy Americans do help those causes. It's a selfish thing. It's I want to live in a world where really productive people are able to succeed. And uh, so there's no reason to worry that those few who wouldn't be able to prosper, and remember, it's very few. How many people in your life have you met who are unable to support themselves? It's a tiny minority. Um, the, 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 there's no reason to think that they won't be helped. And if you care about them, the, the main issue in a free society is nobody's going to stop you from doing whatever you want to help them. But what you can't do is say, I want to help this person, so I'm going to take it out of your pocket, and that's how I'm compassionate. Would you like to respond, or? Well, I mean, we we have uh, some some real differences of opinion. First of all, uh, I think it is a misunderstanding somehow to see, you know, corporations as modeled along the lines, let's say, of a mom and pop store. And I think that's basically the image that Don works with. I mean, our society, right, has basically created the possibility of corporations. Corporations have one very nice thing, right? You can invest in it and you can lose your money, but you are not held liable. So basically, you know, if the corporation 
engages in criminal conduct, if the corporation, you know, goes bankrupt because it damages the environment, you name it, ultimately it is the case that society will have to deal with the results. It's the case that the stockholders basically are not responsible, right? So the very fact that we have created a certain kind of social legal entity, right, just changes how we should look at property rights, right? It raises the question, you know, once you have a corporation which is a legally <coughs> constructed entity created by the state, it has nothing to do with natural property rights, right? Then the question is, well, what are reasonable terms of, you know, cooperation within a corporation? How should profits, for example, be distributed? How much should go say whatever, to, you know, the stockholders. How much should go to, uh, you know, let's say the CEOs, how much should go to workers. And these are not set things. And I want to remind you that it is really not that long ago, right, let's say in the 50s and 60s, <coughs> right, that basically, I mean, most heads of corporations, right, would, would maybe take a tenth of the kind of salary that they expect nowadays, right? We would have tax rates that would be for well-to-do person, like 60, 70 percent. And yet, people cooperated with one another, yet people thought that this was a fair way of doing things. And so you can wonder, well, how has this changed? And I think ultimately the answer has to be something like the global economy, right? That the global economy basically made it possible, right, for people who have capital to invest in other countries and basically set the terms of investment differently. So once capital <coughs> could move to Mexico, to China, you name it, right? basically different demands could be made on workers. Now suddenly, right, we started to freeze more or less the minimum wage, right? We have seen over the last 30, 40 years that basically the income, right, of the average male, right, has stagnated or has been reduced. We have seen that basically, you know, those who are at the top, right, have many, 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 many times increased uh, their wealth. All that, in my eyes, has nothing to do with some kind of sense, like, oh, if you start your own business, then, you know, you kind of deserve the fruits of your labor, right? Most of the things that happens in corporations might only very marginally be related to the fruits of the labor. It's not the case that the CEO nowadays work 10 times as hard as the CEO would work in the 19. 70s, right? So why is it the case that suddenly the CEO then deserves 10 times as much income, right? And so, again, the stockholders, right? I mean, they basically don't do any work. And yet, right now, as the system is set up, right? I mean, it's a pretty good bet to go on the stock market and get pretty wealthy. So. I think this model somehow that, you know, everybody should deserve the fruits of the labor. If I start my own company, right, then I should deserve the fruits of my labor. 
That is a, a reasonable viewpoint, but in my eyes, it basically has nothing to do with what much of what is going on in our economy. And to the contrary, I would say, if you somehow right, are kind of like attracted to this Lockean notion right, that you deserve the fruit of your labor, right, then actually I think you should be sympathetic more to my idea because I indeed want that people who work in companies indeed share in the fruit of their collective labor. Thank you. All right, is there any other questions? Uh, Frank. Oh, Mr. Uh, you talk a lot uh, about you know, getting rid of the welfare state and make, you know, getting rid of work for themselves. <coughs> people are entitled to their own players. But can you, uh, where do you point to any specific places for governments or countries where this idea has been implemented successfully? Because it seems like a lot of countries and most countries have some kind of welfare state set up to ensure you know, the poorest and the weakest are cared for. And so I was wondering like, where, someplace where the abolition of the welfare state is uh, no, that's a good question. I would say, um, so the closest that there's been to a truly capitalist society, and it wasn't perfect, there was exceptions and contradictions and all sorts of things, was again, America really post-Civil War to uh, 1935. Um, but the, the, the question is, why is the whole world gone in the direction of the welfare state? And the thing that you need to understand is that what happened historically was America rose out of a certain ideological movement, the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment upheld the sanctity of the individual. The individual was a rational being who had a, the ability and therefore the right to govern his own affairs. And he was not properly, didn't have to obey some authority. And so they got rid of the authorities of you know, the, the, the Pope the, the, and the King. It was the idea of that, no, each individual is sovereign. He doesn't have to obey and bow down to authority. But there was a counter intellectual revolution that really came uh, after the Enlightenment. And that was the collectivist view that said, I mean, they attacked reason. They said, no, we should be obeying authority. We should be obeying, and the authority came in all different forms. For some, it was the race, and that was Hitler, right? And then some, it was the class, and that was socialism and communism. Um, but the, I mean, this swept the globe, this set of ideas, and the welfare state was one form of collectivism that emerged out of that. And it's in effect a compromise. It says, well, let's try to leave some freedom for the individual, but at the end of the day, society has a trump card. So it's not an accident that we see every country has basically gone to some form of collectivism or some degree of collectivism. It's exactly because the ideas that an individualist capitalist society depend on have been undercut. And that's what Ayn Rand is very important for here because as a philosopher, what she's doing is trying to resurrect the Enlightenment by putting it on a firmer footing, a firmer philosophical base, by defending reason, self-interest, and, uh, and capitalism, and productivity. Productivity is the essence of a moral life. And so the, the, it's not that, wow, the welfare states have been so successful. If you look around the world, they're all going broke right now. It's precisely that the ideas on which freedom depend have not had a firm footing yet. And that's why I think what we're in is a battle for ideas, a battle for reason, for individualism, and for capitalism. Hey, Brendan, like a chance to respond? Or? Yeah, I mean, I think part of what goes wrong here in my eyes is 
is that we all the time keep on talking about the welfare state uh, in in the sense of you know having welfare programs for individuals who need food stamps or unemployed and so on and so on. But the one thing that that you know more or less mostly still has been left out of the picture is of course that the welfare state very significantly right is a welfare state for corporations right and for better or for worse i think it is pretty generally the case that successful economies have been economies with a lot of state interference and ultimately with a lot of state support right of capital and I gave you one example. I mean, the legal entity, the corporation, was created right, by the state right, to enable, basically, the pooling of private capital. Right? It was an entity created to basically help business right, to be able to take up big enterprises and, you know, do not share the risk as an individual, but rather collectively and partly place simply the risk on the community at large. And if you look at, you know, the United States, again in my eyes, I mean the United States, right, became the foremost economic power because of government investment, right? We know that during the Second World War, right, I mean the debt Right, to the GDP ratio was higher than it is now. America was way more in debt during the Second World War than right now. But this debt right, was basically used to stimulate right, industry, to create a war industry. And for better or worse, in some ways, we still have a war industry. And it is still the case right, that basically the government Right, creates employment by basically supporting weapons manufacturers across the country. And if we look at other societies, you see happening the same thing. I mean, see what happened in China, right? Huge infuse of the government in the economy. And basically the Chinese economy, whether we like it or not, in some ways has done Great. And I think you can look at many, many other examples that basically, right, that massive government interference in the economy is a step <coughs> towards enormous wealth creation. Now, I have my own reservations about this step. I have tried to indicate that to you. But I'm saying this partly because I do not believe, right, that this story that Don tells of basically, you know, the idyllic market economy, right, without government interference works. And I think if you look at history, it is abundantly clear that it has not worked. And I think if you look at history, it is abundantly clear, right, that capitalism basically right, can only work if you have massive government regulation. Now, of course, we have struck a kind of a deal, right? And that deal is basically that the government, right, 
support business, and then to some extent the government also basically supports the people who seem to be, you know, the losers in this game. And that is what we call welfare programs, right? That are the people at Walmart who cannot make enough money because they don't have enough bargaining power, right? Because they cannot unionize, right? To basically get better wages at Walmart. And, you know, I think what has happened during the last 20, 30 years is that basically that balance has been lost. In the 50s, in the 60s, even in the 70s, you had a kind of like a balance between these interests. And the balance has shifted, right, to basically towards capital. And that's why we are and will continue to be in a sphere of conflict. And I don't know where this will go. Perfect timing. Thank you. Uh, One time. <laughs> All right, so uh, my question is for uh, Dr. Vanderlinden, and it's actually the question that Levi originally uh, proposed to you, which you neglected to answer, and that is with the supposed compassion that's spoken about with the welfare state, how do you reconcile that compassion with the fact that the only way it works is if you have the state enacting force and violence on people to take the resources to provide the welfare state. How is that compassion? Well, I, I think basically, I, I think I contest presumably what you understand by, by violence. And in, in my eyes, it is basically the case again, a matter of finding ways, right, that are largely mutually agreeable about how you can socially cooperate. And, you know, we have a lot of coercion in our society that you might not view as coercion and, you know, that I think is implicit violence. And so you kind of feel like, oh, you know, if somehow I have to pay taxes, for example, right? That is a form of violence, right? And I would say, well, it depends on what you are paying taxes for and whether or not that somehow contribute, right, to the collective good or not, whether there are reasonable terms of cooperation and decision-making concerning how these taxes are used. Now, somebody else, right, might feel like, oh, you know, I work for Walmart, right? And, you know, I feel that that is a coercive situation. But I don't have a choice, right? I mean, basically it is the case that somehow I have to gather together an income, right? Uh, there are a lot of companies in America that basically require of employees that they work overtime and they do not get compensated for it. Well, no problem. Uh, employees often, of course, don't say anything because they fear that they might be dismissed. So in short, it is the case that many, and I think actually quite a few of you, once you start to look for work, right, will have to dance according to, you know, whatever the tune is of your employer. And I hope that you don't find that coercive, but I fear that sooner or later, you might actually come to the conclusion that that might be pretty coercive as well. 
And so, in my eyes, I mean, again, I want to bring this back to the issue of what are reasonable terms of cooperation. And that's the starting point that we have to have. And again, society is very deeply a collective enterprise. We all basically, you know, live because of the fruits of our predecessors, right? There are generations before us who have basically brought us at the point where we are right now. And, you know, we have to go collectively forward. And this picture somehow, again, of the individual that stands out and is a self-made person, that's so on. I, I just cannot accept that, that picture. And so I cannot accept this picture somehow that it is like, oh, I'm forced to give up my money when I pay taxes. I just don't think that's the right way to look at it. The right way to look at it is basically to say, well, what are reasonable terms of cooperation? I mean, what justifies me, right, to use public roads? What justifies me to, uh, you know, fly a plane and whatever, use an airport? It, you know, what is it that I have done to sit here, I mean, there are generations before you here who have given their money and built to have this building, and so all that is basically, in my eyes, collective enterprise, and so the question for me is, you know, what should you see as reasonable terms of cooperation within that collective enterprise? I mean, there's no better statement of collectivism than we just heard, the denial of the self-made individual, the idea that you didn't earn your place here, you were just given a bunch of schools and your all past generations gave you a whole bunch of stuff that now bind you. Now, clearly, we benefit from other people, but what does it mean to be a self-made individual? It doesn't mean you invented yourself out of whole cloth. It means you take what you were given and you move it forward. And by moving it forward, that is your individual contribution and you deserve to be rewarded for it. Now, this whole idea, so the left will all often take over terminology of the free market and distort its meaning in order to claim it. So um, coercion has a pretty clear-cut meaning. You don't punch somebody in the nose and you don't pick their wallet. But for what we heard here is, no, that's not coercion. If somebody, if somebody votes away your money and takes it for purposes that you don't agree to, that's not coercion. What's coercion? Somebody offers to pay you to work at their company. There's a, that is all Walmart can do. Walmart can't force anybody to work there. All it can do is offer a wage that's higher than any competitor or working conditions that are higher than any competitor. And by the way, why, why do some people choose to work at Walmarts and McDonald's and so on? Be, one of the great things about working at a company like that is they have very clear cut paths for how you can move if you're ambitious from the bottom to the top. And that's why at McDonald's, for instance, many of the people, including the president, started at the cash register, because it's in the interest of a profit-seeking company to reward great employees, to move, to pay them more, to keep them. Uh, indeed, it was Henry Ford, remember, who um, introduced the five-dollar-a-day wage. Why? Because he wanted to keep and motivate good employees so that he could build his profit-seeking business. So to smear these companies and say they're coercing people, but when I take your money for my purposes, I'm not coercing you is complete obliteration of common sense. Now, it is really, really rich to talk about history as disproving capitalism when we hear somebody supporting socialism. Every variant of socialism that has ever been practiced 
from communism to the mixed socialism of a Britain resulted in poverty, impoverishment, the obliteration of people's standard of living, all the way to mass murder. Why? Because it's precisely the individual human mind that is the source of innovation, the source of wealth, the source of prosperity. And yet to hear that blast is there's no such thing as the individual mind. There's no such thing as the self-made man. I like think that you guys worked really hard to get here and that you're going to work really hard to make something of your life. And to, it's just insulting as somebody who both has done it myself and seen the people around me work really hard themselves for that all to be, well, somebody gave you roads. It's true there were these that previous generations made the mistake of having a whole bunch of collectivized systems for education for roads. We don't have to repeat their mistake any more than we have to repeat their mistake of having segregated schools. The fact that previous generations did something does not obligate us to continue their mistakes any more than, for instance, we should be, uh, well, we can't allow gays to marry because they didn't used to be allowed to marry. We get to decide ourselves, what is the right system? Is it one where you are an end in yourself and get to pursue happiness, or is it one where you are a servant? And I think it is so immoral to create a system that exploits you and uses you for purposes that you uh, 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 that prevent you from pursuing your own happiness, that treat you as a burden and a resource rather than a sovereign individual. He mentioned corporations. Let me just really quickly say limited liability is perfectly compatible with the free market. You can create contracts that say to do business with us be forewarned. These are limited liability contracts. Uh, and limited liability doesn't mean that you know if you have corruption within the organization, the government can't put you in jail or uh, go after the rest of your money. Um, for a really good account of this, see the book uh, The Corporation by Robert Hessen, very illuminating on how corporation is a great achievement of a free market because it's a voluntary means by which we get immense amounts of capital to enable us to do things that we wouldn't ever be able to do otherwise, which is things like create uh, railroad companies and airplane companies. Walmart, for instance, what better friend of the poor is there than Walmart, which now you can buy TVs and mattresses and clothes for a fraction of the cost. If you're living on a budget, Walmart is one of the greatest achievements ever, and it wouldn't be possible without the corporation. So to hear Walmart and the people who created it, the people who work at it smeared, I think is outrageous, particularly when the whole solution is let's take away people's freedom and property. All right, I think we have time for one more question. Oh boy, we've got a bunch. <laughs> um, I already asked once. All right, um, I'll go with you back there. Me? Yes. All right, um, Don, you seem to be against the welfare state because taxes are taken forcibly. But um, do you see value in other than the tax not related, not related to welfare, like military or um, road building, for example? That, um, do, you, like, just, do you see any value in the type of taxes? Because those are also taken forcibly. But uh -huh. Well, let me start by challenging the, the first part. So I stressed the issue of taxation, but that is not the worst part of the welfare state. The worst part is that it takes away your freedom to plan your own life, and the taxation is just one aspect of it. So let me just, for instance, uh, take retirement. My dad and I have very different goals in life, right? He wants to, he's always wanted to play golf for a couple decades at the end of his life. I want to work as long as I possibly can. So we have different goals. And so if we were left free, we would take very different actions to plan for our lives. He would invest a lot more, invest a lot more aggressively. I would invest to make sure that you know if something really bad happened, I'd be taken care of. But otherwise, I would focus on things like sending my child to a good school, making sure my wife had a better car so that you know she wasn't risking her life or you know 
uh, inconvenienced. The welfare state takes all of those choices away from you and funnels you into bureaucratic one-size-fits-all systems. It chains us all together in these programs rather than allowing you to figure out what do I want from my life? What's my vision for my life? And I'm going to pursue it independently. So that's the fundamental evil. And the fact that you're taxed to support it is just one version of that evil. It's one aspect that, you're, that what you earn is redistributed to people who didn't earn it. Now, I think taxation... I think you have a moral obligation to support the legitimate functions of government, the functions that protect your freedom and property. So yeah, military, court system, uh, and police force. I think you should pay. I think that has to be voluntary. I think that when if the government was restricted to actually just doing that, it would be uh, easy to collect that voluntarily. I mean, if you just look at the United States pre-World uh, War I, when the progressives really took over, Aside from the Civil War, government spending was 3% of GDP at the federal level, uh, and they were already doing a bunch of stuff that I don't approve of and that I don't think are necessary for a government. So I think, um, no, I don't think that your taxes should be taken for those purposes, but I think that's a different issue. We can debate whether or not we should be taxed to pay for the services that our rights require. I don't think there's much of an argument for I, whether or not I should just be able to take stuff from you and give it to me. Why, why should I be able to do that? You know, you created something. You went out there and earned a paycheck. Uh, by what right do I take it? I mean, think about yourself. Think about if you got sick and you needed help and you couldn't pay for an operation. Would you feel entitled to march over to your neighbor's house and say, hey, guess what? I'm in need, so give me your wallet, give me your car, give me, give me your medicine cabinet. No. You might go over and ask your neighbor for help. You might say, hey, look, I'm in a bad situation. You can help me. But you wouldn't regard yourself as entitled to his wealth. And if he said, look, i got to pay for my kid's college, I don't think you would sit there and go, that's immoral, that's evil. You'd say, well, I mean, your kid is more important to you than me. I'm going to go try to find another means. That is what a free society does. That's what a moral individual does. A moral individual doesn't go say, my need entitles me to a part of your life. Yeah, I think the, the taxation is an interesting example because basically, you know, I think Don in you know, generally people who are libertarians are kind of like say like, oh, you know, the kind of taxation that I don't like, right, that is basically coercive, forced compassion, and so on. And then there is other taxation that I somehow approve and that's okay. And I, I think that is just really not sustainable, that viewpoint. Uh, it is the case, right, that right now, for example, I pay taxes so that Don, right, mysteriously can somehow drive over a public road to the airport. I pay, obviously, taxes that go to the airport, to the air traffic controllers, and you can go on. I mean, you know, universities receive taxes as we have seen. I mean, you know, tons of taxes go to Walmart, right? Uh, and so, you know, for me, indeed, it is again an issue of saying, well, what are reasonable terms of cooperation, right? I mean, uh, what do we need taxes for? I don't think you can simply say, well, some taxes are coercive and others not. I just don't think that works. Either you come to the conclusion that basically all taxes 
are coercive. And then basically you have to privatize everything. That's going to be a royal pain in the neck. Because as soon as Don, of course, leaves the building here, he will have to pay somehow the use of the road. And everywhere he goes, every public facility, he will somehow have to pay for it. Right? And so to have no taxes is going to be an unbelievable pain. So yes, I mean, we all feel in some way, right, oh, yeah, you know, paying taxes is, is a pain. And you know, in some ways, it is, of course, a pain. Because we all have a certain kind of mindset that we rather keep our money. But ultimately, I mean, what is the problem with taxes is not whether or not they are coercive. But it, because in some ways, taxes are coercive. It doesn't matter for what purpose it is, right? But, you know, ultimately the question then is for what purpose are they used and do we find that a reasonable purpose? And some people, right, will feel that it is wrong that they have to pay taxes and then we will use the law, right, to go after them. And in that regard, right, taxes are just coercive because we use indeed a coercive instrument to get taxes. But it makes no difference whether it is then taxes, you know, that is for police or fire persons and so on. I mean, you know, I might prefer to have a private guard, you know. The Indianapolis Police Department, I can say, they ain't too great. I hire my own private guard, right? Why not? And so it seems to me you either end up with complete privatization or you end up basically with questioning, you know, what are reasonable terms of cooperation, you know, for what purposes can be used taxes. And ultimately, I mean, that is partly a matter of democratic decision making and a, and a democratic debate and so on and so on, which we have hopefully tonight. So let that be the last word. How about that? Thanks, everybody. All right, well, thank you, everybody, for stopping by. I think that was a very good debate. Debt Dialogues is property of the Ayn Rand Institute. Its content is intended for private use only.